Well, we've been going through the story of Jesus, uh, Jesus's interaction with this Samaritan woman for quite well three weeks now. And it's a fascinating story. And if just in case there are those who may be just listening for today, a quick recap of where we're up to. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter four, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Galilee from Judea. And they decide to go via Samaria, which wasn't the normal route. And Andrew made the point that perhaps God had in mind this encounter. And that's why Jesus went this way. And they stop outside the small town of Sychar. And Jesus is resting at Jacob's well because he's tired, he's hungry. And so his disciples go into the town or village to try and get some food to eat. And while Jesus is resting there, minding his own business, along comes this Samaritan lady at midday to draw water. And as um, Andrew, I think it was, and and Ben have both made the point, that was uh, unusual that she was coming at midday. It probably meant that she was a bit of an outcast. And we know as the story develops that that's certainly the case. And so Jesus begins this conversation with her. And that's also very surprising because as a Jewish rabbi, he definitely shouldn't be talking to a woman and especially a Samaritan woman, and even more so with a Samaritan woman with a shady past, as is the case here. And in fact, in, in today's reading in verse 27, when the disciples come back, they're rather surprised themselves to see him talking to her. It says they're surprised to find him talking with a woman. Now, they obviously don't know all her background, but they're surprised, and that should confirm to us everything we've been thinking about her and we know if, if you've been following the story we know how Jesus offers her out where they should worship and what true worship is she ends up by saying and this is where we ended last week in verse 25 saying I know that Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes he will explain everything to us and then Jesus declared verse 26 I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. That's where we left it last week. And at this point, the disciples come back with their food, kind of bursting in on the scene, wondering what on earth is going on? What is Jesus doing again? Breaking the norms, doing what he shouldn't do. But they don't dare ask him because they're a bit tongue-tied. And so they just think, well, that's just Jesus doing what he does. But the, the woman at this point sets back off home. And I'm just going to, as we go through the passage, I'm just going to think about two themes. The first is spiritual food and drink, and that will be this first half of the passage, and then second half all the way down to verse 34. And then I want to look at spiritual harvest, which will be verse 35 down to verse 42. So let's think about this idea of spiritual food and drink. Well, we know the conversation that and the women have been having about and we know in John's gospel that the living water is Jesus talking about truth that's the first that we really have and so the woman is interested in this I want this water and so we have that discussion that I've just mentioned and at this point something has gone on with her that she is beginning to understand who Jesus is. And it says, um, verse 28, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me 
everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Because she's begun to experience something of true spiritual drink, she's no longer interested in the physical water that she'd gone to the well to get in the first place. When she began to have that taste of who Jesus is, she was no longer needing that ordinary water. It loses its significance. And she invites the townspeople, come and see. And that reminds us of a theme in John's gospel where people tell others, come and see who Jesus is. The point of John's gospel, as Ben reminded us, and as we heard right at the beginning, is that we may understand who Christ is and so be saved. And so there's this continual invitation going on throughout the gospel, come and see Jesus, just as Philip invited Andrew, come and see, or Nathaniel, sorry, come and see. And so the woman does the same thing, and the people begin to come towards Jesus out of the town. At this point, we read the disciples are, you know, they're kind of worried for their master, and they say, Rabbi, eat something, verse 31. And then his answer perplexes them. He said to them, verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And it, 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 it makes us realize that the disciples are actually as clueless as this woman was in the first place. They're following Jesus as their rabbi, but they do not yet know him as Messiah. And that happens as, as you go through the Gospels. Jesus begins to reveal more and more. But they don't understand the significance of what's really going on. So they then say to each other, well, could, could somebody else have brought him food? And Jesus makes this clear. My food, he says, verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Spiritual food. The disciples are confused by it. They don't understand. But Jesus, again, is drawing on a spiritual lesson from a very physical, ordinary thing, just as the, water wanted, the, the woman wanted water and the disciples are now thinking about food. Jesus is talking about living water and true spiritual food. And if you remember in his temptation in, Deuteron in uh, Matthew 4, he tells the, the devil, as the devil is trying to get him to turn stones into bread, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Quoting that verse in Deuteronomy 8.3, there we cannot live by bread alone. And just as the woman, as, as she tasted something of who Jesus was, was no longer worried about her need for water. So Jesus, as he gets about doing the Father's will, no longer needs food. And that's the true spiritual food that the Father offers us. It's true satisfaction. It's more than the best meal that we could imagine. And it's a recurring theme in John's Gospel that Jesus' highest priority is always to do the will of his Father. And in fact, he only does what he sees the Father doing and says what, he, what the Father says. And this idea of true spiritual food carries on through the gospel. John 6, 27, he tells the crowds and the disciples, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus, by doing God's will, was receiving true spiritual food. And in fact, he'll go on to say at the end of chapter six that his body is the true food. And we know 
John chapter 8 is all about Jesus being the bread of life, spiritual drink and spiritual food. This is what the woman received. This is what Jesus was feeding on. And this is what we need far more than earthly food and earthly drink. So there's spiritual food, spiritual drink, but there's also a spiritual harvest. And the key to understanding this is what Jesus says in verse 35. He says, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. The key there is to open our eyes, to see with spiritual insight. As the disciples looked and saw the fields, they could see fields that still needed four months until they were ready for harvest. But Jesus could look, and if you remember, it says the townspeople are now coming towards him, verse 30. He looks and sees not the fields of grain that are still needing to ripen. He sees the people coming towards him and says, here is a spiritual harvest. Here is a people ripe for the harvest. He sees this crowd, this crowd of Samaritans, no less, who have a dodgy theology and are enemies of the Jews. And he sees here a spiritual harvest. The fields around them weren't important. The fields coming towards them were. And he goes on to talk about the reaper, verse 36 uh, to 38, and the sower. And it says, even now the reaper draws his wages and he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. The harvest now in this end time, Jesus is saying, is always happening. The sowing is always happening. The reaping is always ongoing. And he's drawing on a prophetic picture from Amos 9, where in his prophecy says, in the last days, the reaper is going to be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. As God's kingdom comes in, then there's always people sowing, always people reaping. And that's the period that's now starting, Jesus says to his disciples. This is the time of true spiritual harvest. And he goes on to explain, you know, you're even going to be reaping where others have sowed. You haven't done the hard work. And I think he's drawing on the idea of the fact that God has always been sending messengers, prophets throughout the Old Testament. And there's always those who have gone before the reapers to sow the seed. And that's true for us, I think, as, as, as well. We don't decide exactly where the harvest is. That's what God does. That's the role of his spirit. And you can see that going along, along around the world. Europe is now what they call a, a new mission field. We're a post-Christian continent and we're in need of a new missionary movement. Africa, Asia, Latin America, the gospel is growing in leaps and bounds. But not long ago in North Africa, you could have gone 100 years with seeing very few converts. But now there's a movement towards Christ. We don't decide exactly those places of the harvest, but there's always a continual work to do of sowing and reaping. And so we now see from this illustration or this, this kind of spiritual picture of what this harvest is, we now see it taking place in verses 14, 39 to the end. There is an actual spiritual harvest happening. Many of the Samaritans, it says, verse 39, from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. 
verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. The change here is quite amazing. From a chance encounter at the well where the woman is saying, well, we know the met a pretty amazing guy. Do you think he could be the Messiah? We have this picture where a whole town, we don't know who among the townspeople, but generally there's a, a movement toward Christ. Many more became believers. And the conclusion, verse 42, they said oh we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world that's pretty amazing they had found true spiritual food true spiritual drink and true spiritual insight and i'm sure this town may have been one of the first to receive the apostles in acts 8 and philip when he goes through samaria and the holy spirit is poured out on them and many become believers. So it's, it's a great picture for us. And I, I just want to finish by drawing out a few things that I think can apply to us from this passage. First, we see here at the beginning the basic needs that we have. This story begins with thirst, a woman thirsting for water. And, this, and, and actually Jesus hungering for food. But those are meant to be pictures for us of true spiritual thirst and true spiritual hunger. And I think the challenge for us as church here in Abbey is what is our level of spiritual thirst and hunger? Now, yes, we're Christians and we've received from Christ and we, we, we understand his word and we know him. But there still needs to be, I think, that thirst and that hunger for God a hunger for God's word, a thirst for God's spirit. And if we don't have that, we get very complacent. We just you know, make our, our faith into something that keeps us comfortable or insulates us. But I think the picture here is that we are to be thirsting after God. You know, there's that beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How is our thirst? How is our hunger? Are we too deadened by the problems of life, the difficulties, the busyness, the frustrations of lockdown, to even be hungering and thirsting for God? It's interesting that, you know, the Samaritans weren't expecting a Jewish Messiah, but when they met Jesus, they urged him, verse 40, to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Am I urging Jesus to stay with me or am I picking up my Bible in the morning, reading for a bit and moving straight into the day? Where is my hunger? Where is my thirst? We need those disciplines of slowness and stillness and of taking God's word and chewing on it. It is spiritual food for us. It is bread. And although my dog manages to eat without chewing, I cannot. And if I don't chew and if I don't drink deeply, then I'm going out without really having experienced God. I need to slow down and allow myself to be hungry for God and thirsty for his spirit and drink and chew deeply on his word. And when we do that, then I think the consequence is we really are alert to the spiritual harvest 
the disciples, the women, their eyes were kind of closed to the spiritual realities going on around them. Jesus could see this woman's thirst. He could see the hunger of these people coming towards him from the village. And if you read a very similar passage, a different setting, in Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38, it says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When Jesus sees the people around us, the people coming towards us, he sees sheep without a shepherd. He sees the harassed and the helpless. We tend to see, oh, that guy looks a bit dodgy. I think I'll cross the road. Well, that neighbor's a pain in the neck. I don't really want to deal with him. And we, we, we fall into judging people by appearances. And we don't have those same spiritual eyes to see what's really going on in people's lives. We don't see them as Jesus does. And so I think we can not only drink and feed on God and on his word, but we can begin to pray that God would give us spiritual insight into people's lives. Wouldn't it be amazing to have conversations where we know how to talk to people just as Jesus knew how to talk to that lady? Wouldn't it be amazing to see people with the compassion that Jesus sees them with? And we can also pray, pray for workers to go into the harvest field. And that's not just about missionaries. That is praying that there would be that continual sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping. And maybe one day we're sowing and another day we're reaping, but we need to be those workers in the harvest field. And I think it would be amazing if when we get to heaven, we hear somebody say, I don't just believe, I didn't just believe in Jesus because of your, what you told me, but I met him for myself and I know that he's the savior of the world. That's the response we want people to have when they have interactions with us. And I know that's very infrequent in my life. Maybe in post-Christian Europe, there isn't that sense of hunger and thirst, but there are people and we need to pray that God leads us to them. So let us hunger and thirst for God's righteousness and let us have our eyes open to the spiritual harvest. Let's pray.